welcome to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast, a general practice podcast brought to you by Menlo Park Recruitment. Illuminating Primary Care is here to quiz primary care leaders to offer professional knowledge, experience and insight on the biggest topics in general practice. It's the podcast to listen to if you work in primary care. Welcome to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast. Hello and uh, welcome to Menlo Park's Illuminating Primary Care podcast. Um, I'm David and today I'm joined by uh, Dr. Nabil Arshad, who is a GP at the Brook Surgery in Hyde. Um, it's also one of Google's highest rated GP surgeries and, and I thought this would be a really good opportunity to find out a bit about some of the work uh, you've been doing at your practice. Um, so yeah, thanks for joining me. No, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to have this conversation with you, David. Um, and it's, um, it's nice to kind of have the opportunity to talk about the things that we've done. Fantastic. Um, I mean, a really good starting point would just be understanding a little bit about how you've managed to engage patients in reviewing. I think it's typically quite hard, you know, to get people to, to post positive uh, interactions in any sector, especially healthcare. So it'd be great to just get, you know, get a bit of an understanding about what you've done to, to do that so far. Good question. Um, I guess if I look at, it's useful if I describe how our surgery ran previously and what we did to change things, to give context to the reviews. Mm. So when I joined as a partner approximately three and a half, four years ago here at the Brook Surgery, um, one of the things I noticed was that generally um, patient morale wasn't great. Um, you know, they find it difficult to get appointments. Um, uh, you know, they have to phone up in the morning, phone multiple times to get through. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you get a multitude of patients that end up on your on-call lists. Uh, the reception team try the best to accommodate as many patients as they can, but equally they know the clinical staff that are receiving the patients can find it quite difficult. And as the clinical members of staff, as one of the GPs, you know, on on-call days, we can have lots of extra patients. And mm-hmm. some of them are perhaps n- not appropriate to be an urgent patient. You know, they could have been a simple phone call um, or a quick message that could have been dealt with, but instead they sat in front of me. And then equally, their patients going to A&E that shouldn't be, and they're waiting hours and hours, and it overwhelms A&E. And... I looked at our Google reviews during this time frame. Um, we actually didn't have, we had a um, Google business profile, but we hadn't taken it over. So, I mean, it, it, anyone could have taken it over, which is quite an alarming, alarming thing. Um, I only came through it. There's um, a prominent GP called Dr. Gandalf, and um, he, he, made, he made people aware that this could happen. So this is the moment where I thought, okay, we'll take this over. Yeah. And our rating was quite low. I think it was something like 2.6 uh, after about 100, 150 reviews. Um, you know, I asked myself, you know, if I was accessing a service, if it was 2.6, would I, would I want to access that service? Would I, you know, if it was a fee paying service, would I, would I pay my fee? If it was a free service, would I really want to be a part of that? And the answer is clearly no. So uh, as a partnership, partnership team, there's three of us, there's Dr. Farouk and Dr. Kupanu um, and myself, um, and we have a really strong management team. And we, we sat down and we thought, look, okay. We don't think things are working well. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of GPs share the same sentiment. And we said, okay, we've got these walls surrounding us that we have to kind of ensure we feel, fulfill basic things like a contract, GP contract. But how can we make it work so that it benefits the patient, but also benefit the clinical team? So we started from the scratch. We started all right from the beginning. We looked at all the pain points that the patient have. Yeah. Um, this is through the PPG, sending out questionnaires, and just starting with each point one by one and doing our best to accommodate that as a part of the whole system. Yeah. So what we have now is a 
appointment system that's open 200, um, 365 days a year, 24-7. Mm-hmm. So you just can ask for an appointment anytime. It sounds scary. Uh, I, I, can, I can imagine some a clinician thinking, oh my God, you know, you're probably going to be overwhelmed. <laughs> Unlimited uh, access, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just drowning, drowning in requests. Um, and, you know, at the outset, it might feel like that. Um, but what we thought was patients often worry more when they can't get through and they can't get have communication with a clinician. What if we had a system that allowed them to communicate with us and we can communicate with them quickly? Even if the communication was, hey, we've got your request, it's a bit late in the day, we'll message you later. So mm-hmm. to, I guess there's a lot to be said, but to summarize, this appointment system empowered the patient to feel in control of their healthcare. They can mm-hmm. ask for an appointment when they wanted. And our actually, though we're open 24 seven, seven days a week, bank holidays mm-hmm. included, weekends included, you know, our average time for appointment completion from when it goes on to the system is only five hours, yeah. that's including the weekend. So it shows you how fast we're working in the week, that the fact that weekend requests don't actually skew that data. Yeah. The patients through that have become very grateful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before the same patients who were putting in negative reviews about how it was so hard to access us and, you know, what, how difficult it was to get an appointment and the measures they had to take in place, queue, queuing up in the morning in the cold, phoning 150 times. I remember a patient showing me the phone. I phoned 150 times to get this appointment today. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, unacceptable in my eyes. Like, how, how, can, how can we create a, a service that does that? So, mm-hmm. you know, those same patients were then reviewing and saying, wow, look at the change. We've had an input on this change. The surgery has listened. And they're really grateful. Uh, you know, they tell the friends and family. Uh, and, they, and the key thing is, because they value the service, they've experienced the before and the after. Because they value the service, they're more willing to, you know, spend a few moments to give a review. Uh, so that's, yeah. that's why, you know, we are now Google's highest rate GP surgery. Yeah. And in, in terms of that kind of growth and positive reviews, is that all been quite organic in terms of, has it been kind of organic traffic towards leaving positive reviews or, you know, what, what have you done to kind of actively promote people, you know, going out of the way to do that? Have you used social media to do it? Have you kind of directed people towards it during consultations? How, how have you done it? What's the trick? So I guess most of it comes from the value that the patients feel that they're getting from our service. Yeah. So, and again, they compare before and after. Mm. Another thing is that we're very, very active on social media. So we use social media to engage our patients in a multitude of ways. And that does funnel patients back to sometimes giving us more reviews, like on things like Facebook and Google. So mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. So during COVID, we noticed that we were getting a lot of requests with so much uncertainty from patients. You know, what's happening with the COVID? When is my cohort going to get the vaccine? What what happens if I'm positive for the you know, COVID positive, what happens? What, can I still go to work? Can I still do this? Yeah. Lots of um, misinformation. They felt like the government updates, though they were regular, they weren't specific to the patient cohort that we have. They weren't so digestible, we just, were they? they, yeah, they were, yeah, it's like, it's just gobbledygook, you know, it's almost like when we're taught, if you're giving information to someone, give it in lay terms, give it in terms that's digestible. As soon yeah. as you start adding a level of complexity, you're going to, you know, if the average reading age of the UK, I think, when I last checked, was nine, hmm. you excluded half the population. So, <laughs> Um, we use social media to combat that. So we created regular videos preemptively mm-hmm. to inform patients. And that had a massive impact on the patient kind of um, trusting us. They knew that they were going to get trusted information from a healthcare provider that's their own. It actually um, went viral locally. So even in the local area, some of the videos had tens of thousands of views and they were really benefiting it from as, as a cohort because it was relevant to this area. Yeah. Obviously, each, each PCN, each um, 
area was delivering the vaccine schedule in slightly different ways. So, and I was able to give them the specifics. And we've extended up to things like common requests. We look at, we measure everything that comes through. So mm-hmm. if we have, you know, during the summer, spring, summer, we had a peak of hay fever requests. We said, okay, lots of people are asking for requests. But actually, if we gave them some information, they might have actually realized that they could do some things themselves. And secondly, yeah. they could go to the chemist for some things over the counter. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we did. You know, we, we, we created a video, sent it out to all our patients, and the number of hay fever requests went down, but they felt empowered. Again, that leads into the patient's value or the perceived value they get from our service and yeah. plus the reviews. Fantastic. And I guess it kind of ties me on to my next question about not not in terms of engaging patients, but I guess clinically, what, what are you doing differently to other practices? You know, how are you kind of establishing such a you know positive um, experience for them? Because um, it, it, it must differ in some ways to maybe what a lot of surgeries are doing because it's had such a you know profound impact in terms of patient response to you. Yeah, I mean, I can't really account for what other surgeries are doing. What I can compare it to is what we used to do before. Yeah. So what we do is we to make the system work, we need to invest in all components of the system. So because of the system we set up, our surgery grows. Lots of patients are attracted to our service. Yeah. service. Word of mouth, friends and family join us and we grow. And then with the additional stream of patients, that additional income, we reinvest it back into the whole process. So Mm -hmm. things like, you know, investing in the best kind of technology, the best softwares, uh, consultation systems, phone lines, and anything that we can do to optimize general practice, but more importantly, our staff. Mm -hmm. So we'll make sure that we train our staff, give them regular training, uh, regular training schedules and things that allow them to grow so that they feel valued as staff members too. You know, sometimes when you have a system that's open the way we are, it creates slightly different um, nuances that you need to deal with. But if staff feel empowered and feel trained to deal with these variety of aspects, then they give more as well. They give their role. Mm -hmm. So not only are the patients benefiting, the system's benefiting. So are our staff as well. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And and I guess... You know, this model you've talked about where there's clearly an improvement in terms of access. Um, has it had a knock-on effect in terms of, um, you know, workload? Are, are there any trade-offs in terms of um, kind of the, the, the level of work that GPs, clinicians, reception are dealing with? A very good question. I would say when we first started the process, it, um, it, it, your patients would often put, lump a lot of problems together and come all at once. And it was um, it, it can be quite challenging to deal with that. Mm-hmm. What we did, however, was we measured our um, demand month by month, year by year, variations over winter periods, summer periods, and we staffed up accordingly. So our staff is not based on arbitrary numbers or arbitrary kind of formulas. We know exactly yeah. to a rough, you know, 5% to 10% accuracy how much requests we're going to get when postpone quality, how much request we're going to get. So we staff up in advance of that. So even if there is an increase in workload, we we have measured that. And so we deal with that. You know, if that means you're having hiring an extra member of staff, if that means having locum certain days a week to help accommodate for that. The, the, sometimes, you know, you can have difficult moments. So if we yeah. a couple of weeks ago, as I mentioned to you, um, <clears throat> that we had quite a few members, staff members off. So mm-hmm. I think on one given day, we had up to, including annual leave and sick leave, about 10 clinical staff members off. Right. Um, but our system was still open, so we weren't close to requests. We don't we we don't close to requests. So those times are even more challenging. And in in, in times like that, the trade off, I guess, is we we kind of pause or postpone non non urgent work. Yeah. 
meetings or uh, any strategy planning that we, we that we have in the background um, yeah. we, we pause it push it push it to the side you know th- those things can wait we need to deal with the patient so there are trade-offs on a week by week and those things are hard to predict because you don't you can't predict when people are going to be sick and yeah. I guess that's just the human nature of dealing with bigger teams um, but yeah I mean you know I, I would like to you know say that despite that and despite having that system we've adapted very well because of how dynamic the team is mm-hmm. Fantastic. And and I guess you, you touched on this earlier um, about the emergency services and, um, you know, potentially the impact you've had taking work away from from there. Because it, it does sound like, you know, you guys have been incredibly busy in a, in a positive way. Um, you know, what, what sort of impact do you think that has had on, like, say, the wider emergency services? So to answer that, if you remember what I said before in the old system where patients who couldn't get through, they just ended up falling into A&E. Yeah. Because now that even, let's say, you know, they realize their problem because they're at work or something's happened after five or six o'clock when we're just about closing, they know that perhaps they won't necessarily get consultation for the request in. But because we've built a trust with our patients, knowing that we will get back to them the next day, mm-hmm. because again, we've measured the demand and the capacity and we, we do accordingly, they don't feel like they need to go to any, unless it's an emergency. They feel like they don't have to go to any for their throat infection or their chest infection or a query that they have because the time waiting in A&E, which could be, you know, 10, 12 hours potentially, they would rather just wait till the next day yeah. with us. So actually the data from the ICB, they did, they did give us the data and it showed that despite our list size growing by 70% at that time, mm-hmm. the number of A&E um, admissions from us only went up marginally. Mm-hmm. So in, in real terms, that's a massive decrease in number of referrals that we were sending to A&E for our, for our list size. And we, we were relatively uh, moderate size surgery. And a similar impact was seen on 111 calls. Patients yeah. don't feel the need to phone 111 because they know that they can phone their, a trusted clinician a few hours later. You know, they just have yeah. to wait until the next morning. You know, they don't even have to phone. They put the request in and they wait for us to phone them back. And we'll triage it, prioritize it, phone them back. So... In terms of the emergency services, we've had a, a huge impact on how, how, how many patients of ours actually access that now. So locally, mm-hmm. it's a very beneficial thing for the hospital, uh, our system. Yeah, I mean, it sounds fantastic. Um, and I guess, you know, looking at, you know, things a little bit closer to home, um, do you think that change in perception from patients and kind of that, that improved um you know, opinion of your practice. Do you think that's had a, a knock-on effect on job satisfaction for your clinicians? Um, you know, has it changed how they behave towards doctors and nurses and, and everyone else? It's a very good, very good point to raise. I remember one of our staff members that joined us not too long ago, and I was sitting down with her and I said, "Oh, you know, how are your first few weeks going? You know, any points for us to develop and things that you would, you know, that you have any advice for?" And one thing she commented on was, one thing she noted off the get-go was that patients, when she was phoning patients, they were a lot more receptive to listening to her advice Mm -hmm. and more trusting of her plan. And it didn't feel like she was having a battle with the patient. And she didn't really know that that was a thing because previously in her other surgery, patients struggled to get appointments. They would have to fight. And they'd be waiting. So, you know, they might have had you know, ear pain, ear infection, getting worse, day five, day six, day seven, went to yeah. pain, knee, took too long, came home. So they're really charged and upset and angry. And it, though it's not necessarily directed directly at the clinician, it's, it's palpated throughout the consultation. 
um, you know, when you say, look, I'll, I'll give you X, Y, and Z, you know, why don't you come back in a few weeks' time? The patient might say, well, I barely got in this time. How am I going to get in a few weeks' time? Can you make me the appointment? How, yeah. how, how confident am I that you'll phone me back? She, what she was saying is that that wasn't happening here. The patient would listen, say, okay, thank you. Yep, we'll get back in touch in two weeks. So the, the art of the consultation just seemed that much easier. The patients yeah. were a lot more receptive. And because it, it was working that way, she felt that she could go the extra mile with patients as well. Because it wasn't such, you know, each each consultation wasn't such a it wasn't such hard work. Um, mm. You could try and perform to the best of your abilities without having that friction. So yeah, it has had a big impact on how they perceive us. Um, similarly to when we share posts on social media, we get lots of engagement. So if we have you know won an award, we won an award recently as um, Tameside's um, uh, primary care. Um, uh, number one primary care service uh, on the same side and, and, and patients would you know respond to that and they would agree with that and you know that's very rewarding for us because it shows that yeah. the work that we're doing patients value it too mm-hmm. um, so yeah it has had an impact a big impact fantastic and, and I guess a, a big part of that is just people I guess you're not on, as a clinician I imagine you're not on the back foot straight away dealing with patients where there's a wall up exactly um, which is which is fantastic um, and I guess has, has that helped in terms of retention at the practice? So has that kind of improved reception by patients led to, you know, a, an improvement? Has there been any kind of, um, you know, tangible improvement in, thing, in terms of things like retention um, or kind of recruitment? Yeah. So the way we work, because of how our system is, it works very differently to what clinicians are normally used to. So, we don't have set appointments for patients unless they specifically ask. So, yeah. um, and also we do a triaging first. So you'd call the patient and then decide, am I going to call them in face to face? Can I deal with it with the phone? Do I need some images? And what it does, it gives a lot of our staff, particularly clinicians, a lot of autonomy. So they can, ha- they can kind of control their day. I'll have some face to face in the morning. I might have a break here. I need to do a couple of things and I'll finish off with a phone call. And because it gives them a big layer of autonomy, the patients are happier. And they know that it's a well-esteemed practice. Those kind of all those factors come together, and clinicians typically like being here, and they typically stay. There are clinicians that come and go, things like trainees, which you know we don't really have control over. They are mm-hmm. they're on the pathway, but the staff that we've hired, they tend to be happy and they want to stay. And the, the reputation that we've got amongst staff is that lots of staff want to join us because they've word of mouth through staff, you know, it's yeah. a really good environment they look after us. And like I said, almost everyone has some sort of training pathway where they can develop and grow. We don't put limits on people. We yeah. don't put limits on our system. We don't put limits on people. We say you can grow as, as, as far as you can grow. So all of that has kind of created an environment where clinicians feel valued within the system. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And, and I guess, you know, this is a bit of an off the cuff question for me, but um, have you, enjoyed actively promoting on the like social media side of things because you, you seem natural at it and it's not something you see a lot of gps doctors clinicians uh, people in healthcare doing that that often uh, but obviously you know i came across you through social media so you know that was why i reached out to you uh, to, to kind of get involved in, in the podcast um but do, do you think that's I mean, maybe something that practices aren't using enough and and i guess is this something that you kind of always thought you might go into or has it just been a a response to, 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 like you say, initially negative feedback and, you know, really wanting to overhaul the system. Where, where's that come from, aside from, you know, wanting to improve things? Good. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a very good question, actually. 
I guess prior to being in a partnership, I used to um, do a lot of teaching with the GP trainees. I still do a bit now. Yeah. And um, I noticed that, you know, often I would give similar advice to a multitude of people. And I realized that the amount of people I could benefit would depend on how much time I had, yeah. how much time I could spend with people. But then I thought, okay, if I'm giving people similar advice, what if I made videos that I could share with the trainees and then I benefit a whole core of them, those who watch it. Um, in, and I, I spend, you know, a, a few moments making that video, but a bigger cohort benefits. So I did have some kind of experience with that. Mm-hmm. And then when I came to um, general practice, I think the practice manager at the time, she had seen some of these videos and she said, oh, wouldn't it be great if you did that for some of our patients? You got into really it. Benefit. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, it wasn't really something that I was thinking of. Um, yeah. Because like you said, it's not really done in general practice. Um, yeah. I guess in the world of social media, you see more influencers. Um, but they're not typically tied to a surgery. They're more mm-hmm. um, independent um, uh, social influencers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so w- we started that during the COVID and we saw the benefit our patients were getting. I think sometimes people have a fear as well that, you know, if you look up your reviews generally, if mm-hmm. they're not great, if you start going on social media, the patients will then use that as an outlet to complain. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and, and that can be quite a frightening thing if you don't quite have the right resources and manpower to deal with consistency that. as well though isn't it because i have seen that happen you, you you get practices where you know they've had an event and it's led to you know maybe a range of negative feedback from patients they try to you know i guess reinvent themselves and you know really push on social media mm-hmm. and then unfortunately it, they kind of don't keep up the momentum with it um which I, which I think is a shame because, I, like I say, it's such a useful tool. Yes. Um, and does that subside? So I guess from your experience, that kind of initial negative reaction, does that subside once patients start to see real differences in the service? I think it depends on how how you interact with that. So it's how you respond to feedback. So mm. other, other book surgery, you know, despite the success that we've had, we still get patients messaging us saying, oh, hey, look, you know, my prescription wasn't signed in the 48 hour window like you said you would or this particular you know I put requests and I didn't get quite seen as, as in the time frame that you said you you get these moments and then I think the key thing is that we, not to dismiss it find out what's happened there what can you do what has gone wrong is there anything procedurally that you can get right are there yeah. any changes you need to make and because we follow that process with most of the feedback that we get the patients are, are experiencing the benefits of their input Mm-hmm. so in that respect yes it does subside because when they do have a suggestion to make we take it on board and we try to put it in place and we let, we communicate with them this is what we've done um, yeah. and then they, they value that because I think everyone is aware that you know when you're dealing with something like healthcare and you're dealing with so many patients so many people things don't always go completely right Yeah. but if you're transparent open and you're willing to work at it then you, you gain their trust and I think I, I keep using that word trust but it's so powerful with a patient when you build that level of trust with the patient, you can have a more meaningful connection with them. They're less likely to overburden your resources and trust you when you say, look, hey, this is what we'll do for you. This is how much time you need. And they're willing to respect those kind of time frames. Yeah. And and do you think, again, that this is linking more with kind of the social media side of things and rather than kind of overhauling the clinical systems? Because that, that probably has really good universal you know, applications in a, in a wide variety of practices. But do you think that the social media side of things is something more practices could do better, even if they're in, you know, semi-rural, more affluent elderly areas? Do you, do you think there's kind of 
are they missing a trick, do you think? Definitely. I think social media has so much power. A big cohort of your patients won't be on social media. And another, another cohort of patients will be on social media, but won't be following your page. But mm-hmm. those who are, the information that you can get across to them with the least amount of time invested for the maximum benefit, that process is, for me, extremely valuable. Yeah. You know, you want to you communicate a change in the surgery, you want to get some feedback, you want to celebrate something in the surgery. You can have such a big impact with social media. So, uh, you know, if, if, if their practice is listening to this and they're, they're hearing this, I would implore them to definitely think about a strategy, what they would like to do with social media. It has so many benefits. It has so many benefits. Fantastic. I guess that sort of ties me into my, my, my last question, really. And are there any are there any tips you would give surgeries who are maybe in a more kind of embryonic phase of this? So they're start, sort of starting maybe to pay more attention to it and, and kind of have a look at what they can do. Are there any kind of maybe sort of succinct tips you could offer that, that you know, would, would help them? Yeah, I think it's important to... When you are starting out, look at the feedback that you already had. So patients um, often are quite good at leaving feedback, whether it be positive uh, or even negative, and see what kind of themes are there. Mm-hmm. If you're able to kind of look at those and anticipate that those, those themes are likely to crop up, but if you're able to either address them, and if you're not able to address them, communi- communicate what you can can and can't do about them, I think yeah. that puts you in good stead. And, you know, you can start off simple things like you might have a, you know, a breast cancer awareness day awareness month and you might want to promote post and see how people engage so you can you can use it as an experiment as well go go with simple things that are in, informative beneficial and see how patients respond and allow those moments and those kind of um, posts to develop your confidence and also help develop your strategy what you would like to do it yeah. is important to have a strategy and you know i think people who haven't had experience with social media prior to being in their job roles they might find it difficult so Using organization to help with that can help. Um, you, there's a few around at primary care comms, Cara from primary care, she's fantastic. She gives um, practices lots of advice and support. And I've heard of other organizations that do some similar things uh, like Redmore and a, a few others. So there are, it, this is on the up. And I think people who are utilizing it see the benefit. And, and then, and because they're seeing the benefit, they want to try and push us out more for, for more practice. Yeah. And, and I agree. I think it's a, it would be a great thing if more people came on board. Fantastic. But yeah, I think that's all I've got time for now. So thanks so much for, uh, uh, for, for contributing. Really appreciate you taking a, you know, time out your really busy day to, to, to fit me in. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there, but I think you've, you've kind of really offered a, a good insight into what you've done, the changes you've made. Um, but I think the, the sort of key takeaway for me is really the, the impact of social media. Um, and, and maybe, you know, practices aren't using it as well as they could, or, or maybe, you know, don't know how to yet. Um, but, you know, thanks thanks again for talking us through it all. No, you're welcome. And I guess one thing I wanted to mention was we are starting a new social media project, actually. We have invested okay, a lot of time and trained <laughs> a few of our staff to create a set of videos to benefit our patients. So yeah. something to look out for. We're going to yeah. be um, really doubling, doubling down on the benefit that we give our patients. Fantastic. Well, yeah, thanks very much. You've been listening to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you're a practice looking to recruit permanent clinicians, such as GPs, nurses or allied health staff, 
please get in touch at menloparkrecruitment.com or email james at menloparkrecruitment.com. For daily primary care news, please follow Menlo Park Recruitment on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast.